You are listening to the Swim Not Sink Leadership Podcast, the show for first-time leaders, for that moment in your career when the book stops with you. This is your window into the world of how to lead successfully. Now, over to your host, James Nagel. Welcome to a new episode of the Swim Not Sink Leadership Podcast, the show for first-time leaders. I'm James Nagel, and my guest today is Michael Watkins. Michael is the author of the first 90 days book, a leadership classic, and we are going to explore the topic of how to normalize transition support for new leaders. Now, for those of you who are familiar with Michael's work, this is a great opportunity to go deeper. And for those who aren't, be ready to have your eyes opened. Personally, I wish I'd known about this work when I was a first time leader operating in very much a sink or swim culture. But let me first tell you a little bit about Michael. He has spent the past two decades working with leaders, both corporate and public, as they transition to new roles, negotiate the future of the organizations and craft their legacy as leaders. He wears a few hats. He's an academic and author, working as professor of leadership and organizational change at the IMD Business School in Switzerland, and he's a business practitioner. His consultancy business, Genesis Advisors, is the exclusive provider of first 90 days solutions. So it's my pleasure to introduce Michael. Great to be with you, uh, James. So we've lots to cover today. Um, I know you've written numerous books, but the one we're going to focus on is 90 days. Is transition support the norm, i.e. is your job done or what remains to do? Yeah, it, it's a great question, James. And I think the answer is that um, there's still lots of work to do, you know, and I think that what I see, as I know you have seen, is that it kind of goes in and out of fashion or this leader will do it for their new people, but another leader won't, right? And, and it doesn't seem like there's necessarily a lot of kind of organizational uh, commitment to doing this work, or if there is, sometimes it's it's there and then it falls away. And it's kind of fascinating because, you know, as you know well from your own work, um, it, it's a no-brainer to do this, right? Any of the research that's been done on it that looks at, you know, the ROI to doing this kind of work, it, it's ridiculously large, right? So, so the issue is not the payback associated with this. It's something else, right? It's something else that gets in the way of, uh, of this happening. And I think there's probably several explanations, right? One is just leaders are busy and maybe too busy to help support new people coming in, right? But I always say too busy to help people support is kind of like self-defeating, right? In its own right, because you're only going to get busier if you're not helping your people get up to speed. But somehow carving out the time, James, to as a leader to, you know, invest in helping that that new person get on board. And also I think onboarding and in general is a bit of an orphan from an organizational point of view. You ask yourself, well, who should own that exactly, right? Who in an organization should own that subject, right? Should it be talent acquisition, right? Should it be learning and development? And it kind of unfortunately tends to fall between the cracks a little bit here. And so one thing I see pretty consistently is that onboarding doesn't have a home <laughs> consistently, right? But it's just, I think it's a fascinating question given the fact that it really is so clear that this yields such enormous uh, benefits right now. And isn't it funny that in human nature, we respond to pain points. So if the pain doesn't feel very close, 
you forget about it. So if you've been a leader who's been through a challenging assignment and who's got support, you'll appreciate it and you'll make sure it happens again. But if things have gone well, <laughs> maybe people become a bit complacent. So in your work over the years, what characterizes those who, who, who stick with it? So it's the ones that decide that it's not just kind of a, an activity or a process. It's kind of part of the way they do business and becomes part of the culture of the organization to provide transition support. And they invest in a common language and tool set, right, that they infuse into the entire organization. So long as it's kind of like an event or a process or a toolbox, it's not going to stay you know, embedded in the fabric of the organization. So the organizations that I think have done a great job with this, and I, you know, do a lot of work with Johnson & Johnson, and I would hold them out as a great example, they, they really internalized and embedded it in their culture and the way they do business. And they see, you know, helping people make transitions as part of the role, right, that they have as leaders. We've talked so far about, let's say, the, the company side. What about the individual? Most people who have done a few moves, they begin to realize that they've got to manage their own career, right? It's it's on them. No one cares more about it than they do. So is it the norm or have you seen it where people will, when they when they sign their offer letter and they're going to make a move that they say, but of course, wh wh where's, my, where's my support in terms of onboarding? A absolutely. I see that, right? But, but even before we get to that, James, you're raising a great point, right? Which is there's kind of two sides to this process, right? There's what the organization can do to support the leader joining the organization or moving internally. And then there's the work the leader themselves needs to do, right? And, and, and great onboarding is a combination of those two things. You know, there's, there's limits on what the organization can do to support you. But there's also, of course, set of responsibilities on the part of the leader to be proactive, right, in learning about the organization, in building those, those you know, key relationships. And, and so great onboarding happens when those things align with each other. And I, and I see often either one side or the other side of that missing, right? An organization puts together a reasonably good onboarding process, but doesn't really empower their leaders or make their leaders accountable for success, right, or the opposite happens. And then to your question, I absolutely see that, right? I typically see it, though, at very senior levels, right? So I'm coaching two CEOs right now, both of whom, as part of their contracts to join the organization, said, I get transition support, and, and literally just sort of embedded it in their contracts. But if you're, if you're further down in the organization, that can be very hard to do, right? You know, and of course, the time to do it is when you've got the bargaining power before you accept the offer, right? After that, it's all over. But it's pretty challenging, right? And also it goes to, I think, something you understand really well, which is that sort of sink or swim mentality, right? You know, many organizations, hey, you know, I've hired you, James. Uh, I've paid a lot of money to bring you on board. You're a leader lead. I, I describe it as leadership development through Darwinian evolution. You know, it's a, if you're a great leader, you're going to thrive. And if you're not a great leader, you're going to sink and we're probably better off without you, right? And it misses that core point that you're emphasizing, which is the huge benefit for everybody of supporting those transitions. We're sort of touching on a paradox because when the hiring side says, you know, you're, you're a leader, you're the best that we've encountered through the process, so go ahead and lead. That can be understood both ways. I would argue that if you're smart as a leader, you go, yeah, okay, that's great, but let's let's appreciate the statistics here and how challenging this is going to be and ask for it. 
So one of my favorite questions when I'm talking to HR people in an informal way, I will say, how would you react if somebody asks for onboarding support? But but I'll bet that often their first reaction is is not necessarily positive, right? Because you know, it, 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 and I think it gets to these very almost primal forces, right? Of you know, asking for help means you know not good things. It means you feel vulnerable. It means that you're not you know sufficient as you are. You don't have the capacity, right? There's almost a reflex, I think, for people to think that way when someone asks for help, right? And it can set up a really big barrier therefore, to this. And I think also there's a little bit of, as I have suffered, so shall ye, you know, kind of mentality here, right? I didn't get that kind of support. Like, I'm here, I'm good, I'm a leader. Like, you know, why why do you need it? So so convincing people about that, that there's huge acceleration benefits and that this is not some kind of compensation for weakness, that's part of the, the core of the work, I think. Yeah, and I love that phrase, compensation of weakness, because as the candidate or as the individual, the focus and all the energy is in getting the job. And then, of course, there's all the, you know, the package, the relocation, moving the family. There's so much going on. But the big issue is that that balance of power shifts pretty quickly. And as I've heard you say, if this has been done as a remedial thing, if you're being given support after the fact, you know, then the percentages are are, uh, are much, much lower. Someone who's dedicated most of my professional life to helping leaders get off to great starts. I hate it when I'm asked to come in on a rescue mission, right? And occasionally it happens and maybe for very, you know, important clients, I'll, I'll agree to do it, but it's almost never a happy story, right? Because if you've got a leader who's made some fairly significant mistakes, damaged some relationships, made some bad calls, and the gray cloud is kind of around them, Exactly the same forces that if they'd done well would have given them momentum and propelled them forward are now dragging them down. Right. And I, you know, you absolutely see people who have got to a point where there's literally nothing they can do because every action they take is viewed through this lens, right, of, of negativity about them. We we can't have a conversation at this time of of of, uh, of history without mentioning COVID. You know, my own personal view is that for people in the middle of organizations, let's say, who are pretty stable in the rules, COVID's been a smaller impact. But for the leader at the top, and for maybe for newcomers, it's been a much bigger impact. So you know, I'm assuming the need for this type of onboarding support has got even bigger with COVID. What, what's your experience been? It's gotten bigger and it's gotten different, right? Both, you know, it's gotten bigger because it's much harder to connect people to the organization than it used to be if you're operating purely virtually, right? So I wrote a piece, co-authored a piece for Harvard Business Review on onboarding leaders remotely. And it turns out it's just really hard to do that, right? Because, you know, almost automatically you've got a hand tied behind your back in terms of your ability to learn, connect, and so on, right? And the issue is not so much typically with the new leader's team because you as the new leader get to kind of convene your team and start doing things. And we've gotten reasonably good at doing that virtually, right? But connecting with your peers, connecting with your boss, they're very busy, right? How do you learn? How do you build those relationships through this, this, you know, this medium as good as it is, James, right? I mean, we've learned that we can do a lot with Zoom and other technologies, but there's still lots we cannot do. What, what I took out of it, if I remember, was you have to be much more purposeful. So you have to simplify the messages and 
maybe focus on the priorities even more than you would in the past and communicate and recommunicate. And you can't hope to do everything. Is there any other messages for the audience? Yeah. So, so I think that if you think about some of the core things you need to do when you take a new role, right? Learning is one. Connecting with stakeholders is one. Getting clear on your mandate is one. You know, you need to be much more structured in pursuing those things, both on the organizational side, as we talked about, and on the leader side, right? The, the, the organization, if it's doing the right things, is providing the right information to that new leader in the right form at the right time, much more than they did previously because the leader could engage in some organic you know, learning. They're being much more specific about who the key stakeholders are, right? They're, they're making it clear to those people they need to connect with James, right? So, so that it's being, yes, more pur- purposeful, more intentional, but also just more structured and disciplined in how you do it. So let's, let's go to some of the 90-day concepts because you know, mm-hmm. some of the audience will be very familiar with, with your work, others maybe not so. I'm going to start with the first one, which is about the STARS framework. I have found this massively useful, and I'll, I'll let you talk to it, but j- just to frame the question a little bit. STARS is the five situations you'd classically see. So start, start up, a turnaround, um, accelerating growth, a realignment, or sustaining success. Now, in my work, maybe it's because of the type of clients I have, which are a bit more mature businesses. The contrast is always between the turnaround or the realignment. And in the initial session between the coachee and their boss, I love to ask Cole that question. Could you talk your the important differences between those two? Yeah, I think you're right. Um, but maybe just wind back slightly before that, right? Which is, so why why is this helpful? Very early on in the work I was doing to help leaders, you know, take new roles, it became very clear that the way you transition depends a lot on the situation that you inherit, or more typically, the mix of situations. And we'll come to that in a minute, right? And so you can't give one size fits all advice about, for example, the critical balance between learning and deciding and acting. And that's where your example of the realignment versus the turnaround becomes so germane, right? The turnaround, reactive, crisis-driven change, right? You know, alarms blaring, red lights flashing, you know, obvious need for action. People may not know what to do, but they know something needs to be done. Your job, at least initially, is to come in and do a good assessment of what needs to happen in terms of triage, making the cuts, refocusing, you know, doing whatever is necessary. But it's very action-oriented. You contrast that with the realignment. And the classic realignment, I think of as proactive change, right? You're trying to make change happen where people may not even really understand that it's necessary or be in denial about the need for, for change, right? And so there's no sense of urgency built in. You need to be in a more educational kind of educate people, bring them along, or if you can't, you may have to make some changes on your on your team. But it's just a very different orientation. And you're coming in to a realignment in much more of a learning, connecting, engaging kind of way, right? You're working mostly initially, at least with the, the team that's there already, whereas in a turnaround, you may be replacing a good chunk of the team right away. So it just, you know, to me, the, the example you picked is a perfect one, right? Because it's just so clear that if you come into a realignment behaving like it's a turnaround, you're going to trigger a massive reaction on the part of the organization because there's not readiness, right? If you came into a turnaround the way you would into a realignment, you wouldn't be moving fast enough. People wouldn't think you were being active enough, right? 
And so it's getting that match between the strategy and the situation that's so, so critical. And I think depending on the culture of the company, some companies like to, th- they thrive in turnaround language, even when it's not turnaround. I have little jokes about this. My joke about this one, James, is I have a friend who can turn anything into a turnaround. And if it isn't when he starts, it sure is by the time he's through. Right? <laughs> you know, and, and I think that, um, I, I, and again, I have little jokes, but I wrote a paper years ago, and the title of the paper was Organizational Pyromaniacs. Right. And of course, a pyromaniac is someone who likes, likes, likes to light fires, right? And my point was there are people who love firefighting so much that if there isn't a fire going on, they will create a crisis or they will help manufacture a crisis. You know? But, you know, if you're in an organization that's doing, you think, reasonably well, and someone comes in and talk, starts talking about the need for a turnaround your mind just kind of switches off almost automatically, right? It's kind of, oh, here we go again, right? Burning platforms. So I think it's really critical as a leader that you calibrate relative to the situation. The advice I give is, look, if it really can legitimately be seen as a turnaround, by all means, talk about turnarounds because that language is helpful. If it isn't, Right. Don't, because it's almost a sure way to lose credibility uh, if, if you go down that road. And it reminds me of an article uh, I read a couple of months ago, which was, is it better to take over from a failure or a success? And linked to what we've just talked, the majority of people that I talk casually with about it, they all said, oh, from a failure. Which is indicative that they, OK, great, is a problem and I can come in and turn around. And I said, hmm. Well, first of all, you have to know your own style and what you're better at. What's the problem about taking over from a success? Well, so, so I think it's a great conversation, right? Because you can ask yourself, which of these is hardest, which I think is actually not the right question. It's what makes each one of them hard, you know, and they're hard for different reasons, right? Coming in from a, you know, to take over a turnaround, you can feel like, hey, there's nowhere I can go but up from here. You know, if, I, if I'm not successful, it, it just was unwinnable, you know, you can sort of put that logic on it. You come into what I would call a sustaining success situation. You've had a very successful leader. The organization is is doing great. A surface level look at it would say, well, nowhere to go but down, right? I, I don't want to be the one that kills a successful business, right? How am I going to distinguish myself? Well, you know, you you absolutely can, but you have to go in there, first of all, Try making sure you understand and can demonstrate what's made this organization successful. And then you can begin to engage with that organization about how do we continue and perhaps even accelerate that success, right? How do we reignite growth in a business that maybe it started a plateau? So I see opportunity, James, in all of these. But, but to your point, and it's a really crucial point, it partially depends, too, on your capabilities and style. Right? There are absolutely people who are better at turnarounds and realignments and vice versa. Now, I think the true you know, enterprise leader needs to be able to do all of those if you're going to run a large business. But there's people who make great careers out of doing turnarounds. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So, well, I mean, we could, we could spend all day just on that, on that theme. But we'll, we'll move on to a second one, which I think is very um, relevant to somebody who's in a situation of a transition. And it's the whole visualization which you came up with of drinking from a fire hose. There is so much information coming in and it's not a different, a different scale, a different complexity, and there's a more urgency than you've seen before. So it's, it's tough. And people really start to absorb that. They realize, oh my God, I'm a bit out of my depth here. 
Now, it can be counterintuitive at that time for someone in our line of work to then say, okay, now you got to think it through what you want to do because they're going to go on top of everything I need to do. I need, now I need to take time out to think. Who have you seen or what type of people have you seen have done that well? So, so what you're getting at is a dimension of, of sort of leader mindset coming into new roles. And, you know, to me, that sort of confident, confident but curious kind of mindset becomes so critical, right? I mean, the worst thing of all is the leader that feels like they need to have the answers to the questions early on, right? That's the worst scenario, right? Or sticking with what they know in some way or another, right? And not just embracing the need to learn, right? And oh, by the way, the, the opportunity to show that you are learning and learning fast and and that as a source of, you know, sort of credibility building all in itself, right? So that confident curiosity to me sits at the bottom of an effective mindset when you're taking over a, a, a new role. Then there's how do we separate the wheat from the chaff problem, right? Which is what you're getting at. And it's really what do I need to know in order to take the next set of actions and those could be learning more. They could be making a decision here. They could be doing something with my team, right? In the midst of that flood of information, right? So how do I filter out what's coming at me to know what's critical and what isn't? And oh, by the way, how do I ask and not just be a passive recipient of information? And it's completely acceptable. It's hard to say, I don't need to know that yet. I'm going to need to know that, right? But I don't need to know that yet. And if you don't do that, then it is the fire hose and you are going to drown under the weight of the information that you're receiving. I've seen people be even surprised. They say, you know, do I need to be that deliberate? Because one thing I tell them is in your first one-on-ones, especially if you're doing them remotely, you have to control the agenda. It cannot be any form of chat. You need to find out three or five things from each of them, have some consistency, stretch them a bit and then be able to conclude. Because if you miss that first chance, especially in a broad role where you've, by the time you can set it, those calls up again, a month is gone. <laughs> it's operating at a different level. So 100%. I, I do think that a little bit of personal connection in those first calls is great. But ideally, you've even done that before you're formally in the job, right? And so you can be much more business focused once you're in the job itself. Using that time before arrival well is a, is a very important part of this, right? You don't just take a vacation and go off to, you know, wherever, right? You, you need to be at least somewhat purposeful in taking that month or two before you're formally in the role and making the maximum possible use of it, including connecting with your team, right? In- including, you know, learning some key things while you've still got the time, you know, and, and, and mind space to do it. Because as soon as you're in the role formally, your calendar is 100% uh, full, right? But to your point, you know, I think that anything you can do to be systematic about learning helps, right? The example you gave, 100% agree with you, right? I, I tell the people I coach, have, have a set of questions that you ask everybody on your team. Same basic set of questions. What do you see as the, the biggest challenges we're facing? What are the most important unexploited opportunities we should be focusing on? What should I know about the culture of the organization? Are there any organizational hot buttons that you'd want me to be aware of? Yeah. If you were me, what would you be focusing on? 
But I, I think that last one of your list of, you know, if you were me, what would you do? That has so much in it. And in a way, it's really a good way of assessing your new team. Well, it doesn't. Uh, how people decide to, to you know, kind of interpret that question can tell you a huge amount about them and about the organization. Um, no, I, and I mean, I, I just ran this process. And of course, we're doing this remotely now, right? So it's very different. And so I did something I haven't done before, which is I, I put a, I got a survey. I used a simple survey to get the team to answer questions like that, as well as questions about what would they most like to know about the new leader, the new CEO. What would they like him to know most about the history of the leadership team? It worked incredibly well, right? Because he, you know, I distilled it all out. He and I were able to talk about it. He went into that first meeting with the team, full team. He'd met with the individuals previously and was able to kind of lay this information out and, and get reactions to it. And, you know, am, am I getting it, right? Great. So moving on to a, th a third uh, concept is the chapter about managing yourself because there's also the human side and there's one phrase which really struck with me which was transitions tend to amplify your weaknesses can you talk to to that thing about how do you handle that those tough personal moments and that when your weaknesses are amplified yeah so so you know just to, to reiterate what you just said right which is there's always an emotional up and down curve associated with transition, right? You go in, you're excited. Gosh, I got this new rules and it's amazing. And then you start to hit up against some resistance, you know, or things get a little overwhelming perhaps and you're into the valley for a while and then you come back out again. So you should just go in expecting that there's going to be a bit of that. And the name of the game is not to go too high and not to go too low, right? To try and regulate yourself to some degree over the course of the the process. Um, the second thing I tell people these days is pay a lot of attention to your energy. What's draining energy from you? What creates energy for you? What does your energy battery look like? The third piece is really what you got, you're, you're getting at, which is virtually every leader has some fairly deeply embedded set of behaviors that may serve them well under normal circumstances but can really be problematic when they get under stress or get triggered. And the first step is to understand that. I'll give you an example, right? So, you know, some leaders have extremely high standards, right? We could even call them unrelenting standards. Excellence is not good enough. Perfection is necessary. They, they apply it to themselves, but they also tend to apply it to others. Under normal circumstances, that may be moderated to a degree, but if you've got a lot of anxiety going on and and that tends to trigger you and you see something going on in the organization that isn't meeting your standards you can easily overreact to something like that even unconsciously and that can be very damaging so that's what i guess i mean james by you know and and the answer by the way is first of all being you know aware of what those potential derailers are and there's pretty good assessments like the hogan development survey, which you may be familiar with, that can help you understand what those are. And then begin to understand what happens to you when those things are triggered, right? Begin to become more aware, begin to label when it happens, begin to think about how do you compensate for it, right? And compensation, by the way, may mean I need to walk out the door right now, right? Because if I don't walk out the door right now, I'm going to say something I'm going to really regret. Does that make sense? That that makes more sense than you can imagine. <laughs> the trigger and the reaction and the consequence. So I picked out a couple that I've 
I really find useful. What's your favorite of all your concepts or tools that you've used? So I, I think the whole thing about networks of influence and alliances is something I consistently find really helpful, especially with senior level clients. Because, you know, when you get to the top of an organization, it's inherently very political internally and externally. And you need to be kind of um, prepared to almost engage. I think of it as almost like diplomacy, uh, understanding the way networks of influence work, understanding who key stakeholders are, understanding what alliances you need to build and sustain over time. So for someone, you know, I mean, I, I work mostly now with, you know, senior executives, that's the piece I consistently see be most valuable for them as they get to those very, very senior roles. Michael, normally at this stage, I ask people, what is your advice for someone who's on the cusp of the hot seat? So you're going you're gonna to think this is a little odd, but very early on in working with leaders taking new roles, I'm focusing them on their development as a leader. And I know that sounds counterintuitive because you think, gee whiz, you got no time to do anything but focus on being successful in this transition. But I believe very deeply that every leader needs to have a leadership de development agenda. And so the conversation I have, and it's not on day one, James, it's probably on day you know, 85, let's make this up. I'm beginning to have a conversation with leaders about, okay, you're going to be successful in making a transition into being the CEO. But what do you need to do to become great at being the CEO? And we begin to kind of almost morph the dialogue much more towards that next phase or era of activity, which is them being in kind of leader development mode. How strong are people at verbalizing that sort of future state? Because I, I'm, I'm amazed at how people, they're very good at current issue definition, but there's few people who are very good at expressing that future state. Well, and that's, you know, full employment for you and me, right? That they don't do that. So, you know, for sure, right? I think that you have to provide them with a structure. You need to provide them with a framework. You need to help them think it through because their minds are 100% on that transition or running that business. And they don't necessarily have the mental space to do what you're describing, right? And so what you need to do is get them, you know, to spend that half hour saying, at, based on what you know now, your experience so far in this transition, what do you feel like you most need to work on? I, I, these days, I'm coaching a lot of first-time CEOs, which I love to do, right? Because it's just such a, a, a interesting but large leap for people. And if you ask yourself what's hard about being a CEO for the first time, even if you've done really senior large jobs before, you've got to manage the board you know, as the primary person dealing with the board. You are, you know, the number one person responsible for connecting externally. Yeah, the, the point about communication externally, I, I did that, I covered that with another guest who was a business journalist who said that many people, especially when they've moved up internally, they spent their whole time of being suspicious of the external world. And then when they move as CEO, that is, you know, the bread and butter of the job. And it's it's not it's a hard one to learn on the, in the moment. It really is, but you can. Right. I mean, it's better if you've learned some of it before you get up there. There's also I means a trap built into that, too, James, which is important, which is there can be a tendency for those people to, to just keep focusing on the inside because that's what's comfortable. Right. Whereas what needs to happen is you need to build 
as a CEO, the team that's going to take care of most of the internal stuff so that you can pivot, right, to spending 50%, let's say, or more of your time working externally, because that's the, an absolutely essential element of the job. So it was great to see your eyes light up when you were talking about first-time CEOs and how much you enjoy that work. I'm wondering, having been in this in this area for 20, 30 years, what's coming up next for you? So I'm working on the next edition of the first 90 days, which I'm pretty excited about. But I'm still, you know, I'm still very actively writing and doing research on things. I mean, I, I had a piece in the Harvard Business Review online on January 4. I've got one coming out in Sloan Management Review tomorrow that's about leadership in the new hybrid, you know, world of work. And so, you know, I, I don't anticipate, you know, slowing down anytime, anytime soon because there's still such interesting things going on. Well, focus that, on. That, that, as someone who's newer to the field, that is, that's uh, very inspiring to hear. So, Michael, thanks very much for your time. Pleasure. You've been listening to the Swim Not Sink Leadership Podcast. Subscribe at swimnotsink.com forward slash podcast.